0: but is unloved and unsexy. It goes through volatile cycles and is often an afterthought for the average consumer and investor. And yet, it's something we've been doing for thousands of years, and we're pretty good at it. We are, of course, talking about agriculture. But when you look at soft commodities like corn, wheat, and soybean, they've all seen their prices crash in the last couple of years by as much as 60%. Featuring Alan Boyce, macroeconomist and agricultural investor, He'll talk us through the biggest challenges
1: facing the industry and most farmers in America. There's lots of young farmers in the United States that um, have make, gave, give it a good go. The problem here is that they generally don't have a lot of wealth. So to expand, they had to borrow a fair amount of money. They borrowed in U.S. dollars, not Argentine pesos or Venezuelan bolivars. So they owe U.S. dollars back. Sadly, their margins, their costs are in U.S. dollars, So at today's what seem to be kinda low US dollar soft commodity prices, their margins are crushing. Now you're going to have a second instance in my lifetime of bad confirmation bias. Few people are taking an interest in
0: the topic. And we are attempting to change that because if you look where others aren't and open your mind to potential outcomes beyond the status quo, what lies beyond are huge opportunities in the agricultural space. And it starts with understanding the fundamental forces that will drive the next cycle. This week on Adventures in Finance, agriculture.
2: Also coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and the not so good stories of the week.
0: I'm long Twitter for a couple reasons. First of all, because I really like the FinTwit community. Uh, I get a lot of value and and it's a great place to kind of engage in ideas and look at charts. Um, but I'm long uh, Twitter specifically for the reason that Bloomberg is now teaming up with Twitter Uh, they're partnering with Twitter to produce uh, to create this 24-7 news stream I am
2: short uh, the people in charge of running the EU just by way of a change you know this uh, we're starting to get down to the part where the rubber meets the road in the Brexit negotiations. But uh, but Tusk came out of a meeting and he said that uh, the EU27 had unanimously agreed their guidelines for the upcoming um, negotiations with the UK in a meeting that lasted one minute.
0: And finally, in a favourite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about a mistake they made and ask them to share a pearl of actionable wisdom with our listeners.
2: Yeah, we got a real treat for you this week. A young man from uh, Brisbane, Australia, of all places, Daniel Watt, who's the CIO and co founder of Prerequisite Capital Management. Um, he really is a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Uh, I've interviewed him twice now, and each one has been just so much fun to sit and hear that depth of thought. And this week, Daniel talks about what he got wrong uh, about the end game in Australian real estate, which is a topic a lot of people are focusing on.
0: I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is May 4th, 2017, and welcome to episode 14 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is producer James. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right, Aaron. How are you doing? I didn't see you this morning. Where were you? Uh, I was at the dentist. The dentist? How was that? Yeah, it was good. It
3: didn't go as uh, badly as I, you know, imagined it would. I'm not not really
0: one for dentists. Yeah, I see you smiling more today. Your teeth are uh, whiter, but Grant's sitting next to you, so you may not be smiling for longer, for much longer. No, all I have to do is turn to, to my left, and, you know, I'm confronted by this hideous figure.
2: Well, no, I'm just thinking, sitting here uh, with James between us, Aaron, is about the only thing I'd rather do less than go to the dentist myself. But we are, we are here. There's nothing we can do about it. You know I love you really, right? Well, I hope so.
0: So Grant, what's... I mean, it's been three weeks in a row. I, I, I don't want to start taking this for granted, but it's, it's been really fortunate to have you here because I feel like the... the uh-uh.
2: your, not, timing, your timing is perfect because <laughs> you're not going to see me for a couple of weeks now. I'm going to be off traveling. All
0: right, again. I'm not going to ask you to spill the beans, but... Can you give us a clue as to where you might be headed next?
2: Uh, I can. It's, uh, it's a European country and it has a lot of mountains in it and chocolate and
3: the
0: odd gnome. So does that mean you're going to be uh, rehearsing your yodeling skills? James, no clues, no Any, spoilers. Anything to do with sh- the shiny yellow metal?
2: It may have something to do with that, yes, but you'll have to wait to find out.
0: All right, can't wait. But anyways, let's move on to our, um, our long, short segment for the week where, as Grant said, we go through the good and not-so-good stories of the week. Uh, Grant, why don't I start with my long? Well, maybe I, I want to
2: start with my you, long this week.
0: All right, well, rock, paper, scissors? All right. Rock, paper, scissors. Shoot. I go first. Nice. You always go rock. There's been a study that was put out that rock wins around like 35% of the time which is over the expected win probability of 33%. Okay,
2: so you are now never going to win a game of rock, paper, scissors against anyone listening well, but to this But now podcast. I'm in your
0: head, right? So you're, th- you're going to go paper
2: next time, I'm going to go scissors. I know, I know. you're a, you're a statistics man, you're going to go rock now, that's great, great. thank you.
0: <laughs> well, uh, for this week, I'm long Twitter. And I'm long Twitter for a couple reasons. First of all, because... I really like the FinTwit community. Uh, I get a lot of value, and and it's a great place to kind of engage in ideas and look at charts. Um, but I'm long t- uh, Twitter specifically for the reason that Bloomberg is now teaming up with Twitter. Uh, they're partnering with Twitter to produce uh, to create this 24 seven news stream that is going to be exclusive to Twitter, and not only for finance. It's going to cover a lot of different um, a lot of different things. And I, and so I thought this was interesting because Twitter. It's been bashed quite a bit. The stock's been yeah. pummeled. Um, and I actually posted a chart today on Twitter showing how um, Twitter's now breaking out of its, I guess, 6 uh, three-year resistance since its IPO in 2013 and is now breaking out of that resistance, which looks like a pretty compelling long if you want to go on this a This is
2: really chart. kind of meta now. You're posting charts of Twitter on Twitter.
0: Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, uh, well, for
2: me, my long this, this week is a little more esoteric. Uh, I am long guacamole. I've decided, uh, which uh, nice. is one of James's favorite foods. I actually saw this story. The price of avocados. Yeah. The price of avocados has doubled in six months. Um, yeah. And, you know, when this, uh, when this border wall goes up, this is going to be a big problem because Mexico supplies 82% of the avocados eaten in America.
0: Ha, wait, um, what percent?
2: 82%. 82%. billion pounds of avocados wow. flood across the border, pouring across that border. Uh, and, uh, and that was just 24 million pounds in 2000. So 15 years, the increase in avocados is, is extraordinary.
0: Do you, think, um, do you think New Zealand might step up with some, well, with some more they are. Yeah,
2: I mean, look, I know a little bit about avocado farming in New Zealand, and, um, the, but the trend is the same there. I mean, the, 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 uh, the demand from China is one of the main reasons the price is going up Um, and it's insatiable. Uh, prices have doubled in China just this year already. Um, and, and the way the crops have gone, it doesn't look like this. This price is going to go down anytime soon.
0: You know, I've never had Chinese food that had avocado in it. I wonder what that's like, because avocado is not a fruit that's a fruit yet. That's native to the Chinese. It is
2: true. But hey, the Chinese love their avocados. They love their guacamole. James, you should go to China. No, really. Go to China.
0: All right. Well, Grant, my short for the week is uh, I'm short lab technicians. And actually, it's it's a long that's disguised as a short, but let me, let me tell you about this. So in the United States, there's about 328,000 lab technicians who earn about uh, 50,000 medium salary. But I was reading a story about how there's tons of investments going into these uh, odor diagnostic um, technology where basically you can use um, – they have these sensors – and they can sense, they can break down the molecules and detect the molecules and then from there diagnose diseases. Okay. So, I mean, this, this kind of technology has a potential to disintermediate, you know, that whole value chain where you go to a doctor, remember, maybe you see a nurse and then they run some tests and then the tests are sent to a lab technician, they run more tests and then finally you get, you know, some kind of results. I mean, this, you imagine you could order... So uh, you walk
2: into the surgery and somebody sniffs you?
0: Well... I don't know if it's that simple, but maybe no. I mean, I mean seriously... are
2: that. They're doing that in vets already.
0: Well, yeah, because well, dogs are actually amazing at detecting cancer. They can smell cancer, which is which is crazy. But uh, I could see one day where you just you go onto Amazon Prime. You could go onto Amazon Prime and just order one of these uh, one of these devices, and it can tell you what's wrong with you. I mean, and Grant, you're going to like this. Uh, some of some of this technology. They use uh, the sensors is a silicon chip stacked with various metal layers and tiny gold electrodes. Another one, it's a smelling machine that uses an array of sensors composed of gold nanoparticles and carbon nanotubes. So,
2: yeah, I guess really in any case, you're this. always
0: you're just long gold. I don't really know what to think about this, Aaron. I think I saw this in an episode of Futurama once. Yeah, it
2: does sound. It does sounds very futuristic. vision Well, my listen, my uh, my uh, short is a little bit more. Um, a little bit more easy to understand i am short uh, the people in charge of running the eu just by way of a change you know this uh, we're starting to get down to the part where the rubber meets the road in the brexit negotiations and you know donald tusk uh, the president of the european council very proudly um, <laughs> shadowy
0: yeah. who i don't even who else is on this council
2: well, I don't think I like to talk about it. It's a bit like Fight Club. But uh, but Tusk came out of a meeting and he said that uh, the EU27 had unanimously agreed their guidelines for the upcoming um, negotiations with the UK in a meeting that lasted one minute and ended in spontaneous applause. Now, if you ask me, A, I'd be worried about anything decided in a meeting like that, and B, it just makes, it's a little desperate. It's a little desperate. You know, we're all together in this. Everybody's uh, together, and we're all strong, and we know exactly what we want to do. And then you have Jean-Claude Juncker later in the week talking about what a disaster of Theresa May was. The EU, they're starting to feel a little bit desperate to me.
0: Do you think they made the decision in Brussels and then packed everything up, took a train, and then went to Strasbourg to, yeah, to clap?
2: They, it wouldn't surprise me. But, yeah, you know, this, this idea that... Uh, that the EU is just one big happy family and they hold all the cards is just... I mean, it's farcical. But these guys, they just refuse to budge. And, and you know, they can't... Junkers on the record are saying the Brexit cannot be a success. So, you know, I don't think the UK holds all the cards either... But I think the, um, the negotiations will be begun in bad faith on the part of the Europeans, and that does not end well. So yeah. I am, once again, short the Eurocrats.
0: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, Grant. I think when, when the inflation metrics and the PMI metrics finally start turning over or rolling over in Europe to see uh, whether there's still feelings. St-
2: well, oh, look, let, let's let's face it. The French election isn't done yet, actually. When this goes out, will it be done?
0: No, it won't be done by the time it goes out. This goes
2: out this Thursday, right? Yes. If I well, let's face it, the French election is not done yet. Um, and despite Macron being a heavy favourite, uh, it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that somehow Le Pen wins this thing. And if she does, you know, the, 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 the discord at the heart of Europe is going to go up a whole, to a whole new level. So, you know, I just, I just think these guys are delusional. Uh, I've been short them for a while, but I'm doubling down.
0: Well, Grant, let's move on to our commentary segment. Where this week we're featuring Alan Boyce, who is the former director of special situations at Soros Fund Management, and Alan's been a director or in a host of agriculture and energy companies. I mean, you said last week this guy is a true polymath, and it was so interesting to watch this presentation.
2: He really is. You know, I, I sat down with uh, with Alan in Santa Monica, and. Just, just a fascinating guy. We, we we talked as long off camera as I think we talked on camera uh, about just such a wide range of subjects. And you know, here's a guy who uh, has a deep thirst for knowledge, works really hard to understand things. I mean, to a depth that most people just never get to. Uh, and he's not afraid; he doesn't shy away from from making decisions that are against uh, you know the prevailing public narrative. It's, it was fascinating to talk to. So, so let's jump into it. Okay, so Alan Boyce um, is a name that won't be familiar to a lot of people, uh, but uh, he's had a fantastic career, and when we sat down to talk to him, this was his second appearance on Real Vision, and his first appearance, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise and and blew a lot of people away in some of the big ideas he was talking about, and we haven't had that many people to talk about agriculture, um, particularly, we we got into demographics and some other things, but
3: Alan's knowledge of that space is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, Alan's background, I mean, I've known Alan for, I don't know, a decade or so, and he was originally a bond trader yeah. and a mortgage trader. And then suddenly he got involved in agriculture because he was started to farm with his brother and started to understand that business and ended up building a huge farming business for Soros uh, called Adeco Agro, which he's still involved in and Soros is still a large shareholder in. Uh, and Alan knows everything about everything. he's kind of the inside man it really is
2: I mean when you when you when I talk to him, it's amazing the stuff he would just pull out of his head was remarkable.
1: yeah, really super interesting. Let's have a listen. people should understand that for commodity soft commodity prices all around the world are traded in dollars. but aside from a few places like Canada, their costs are in local currencies, mm-hmm. not in u s dollars. so when the price of corn is unchanged in US dollars, and the dollar ra- rallies by 20%. That puts the US farmers at a c- huge, huge competitive disadvantage. That actually looks like the top line goes up for everybody else. Their margins increase, whereas for the US farmer, it doesn't look like anything happened. Secondly, let's talk about um, regulation. So the state of California, um, in their infinite wisdom, and now this is the environmentalists and the labor unions, um, uh, operating in the absence of fact, have passed a bunch of laws recently that have made it very hard to to farm in California. So one was um, minimum wage. So they raised raised the minimum wage statewide to $15 an hour. It takes a few years to scale up, but $15 an hour. What's the federal minimum wage now? It's like $7.50 or something like that. Now, in some places in California, like where we are now in Santa Monica, you can't hire anybody to serve coffee for less than 15 bucks an hour because it costs a lot to live here, and the labor force is fully employed, and it's actually not going to change anybody's business for doing that. If you have to raise the cup of coffee by 25 cents at Starbucks to pay $15 an hour, nobody will notice. Right. Same thing for San Francisco or Palo Alto or some of the other rich spots, Newport Beach, for example. However, California is big. There's 58 counties. What about Del Norte County or Imperial County? These are places that, like, time forgot. They're agriculture counties. In Imperial, Del Norte, they used to cut down trees and and turn into lumber. But that business is long since gone. Raising the minimum wage to to $15 an hour in those counties is the same thing as saying, we want you to go out of business. Unless you are in the business of selling services to the government right? And who will tax the rich people in West LA and Sacramento to pay for it? You're going out of business. Like, how could you possibly compete with Arizona, which didn't do that, or in Mexico, where before the devaluation, people worked for $10 a day. that was when the peso was 15 to 1. Where is it today? 21 and change, right? So maybe they raised... Minimum wages a little bit in Mexico recently. I'm not sure they did. I'm thinking now labor in Mexico costs $7 a day. Yeah. Right. So we doubled it and theirs dropped by 30%. Same water coming out of the Colorado River, right? Northern Mexico is the same growing conditions that we have in um, lower desert California, Arizona, Texas, all those agriculture um, jobs. By the way, those agricultural industries by definition, cannot leave the state of California, so they pay all their taxes here, right? You cannot re-domicile a field that grows winter <laughs> vegetables. So next one that the state of California passed was overtime. So in every state in the United States, there's always been an exemption for paying overtime for agricultural workers because the work is seasonal. Mm-hmm. It is not a 40-hour-a-week, 52-weeks-a-year kind of thing. This time of year, the days are short. Aside from winter vegetable growing areas in the lower desert, there's basically nothing to do. And when it comes to harvest in the summertime, you've got long days and you've got to get that crop out of the field. And the whole workforce is fully attuned to the idea that you work when the jobs are there. And they've decided that any hour over 40 in any week, got to pay time and a half. Well, that is going to make it so hard for farmers that you just can't believe. And it, like Sacramento, is, is ignorant on that. Well, I could go on and on, but at some point, these restrictions in the most competitive industry on the planet, which is agriculture, mm-hmm. it's the closest thing to pure competition, you know, Adam Smith style that you can find, um, between that and the strong dollar, it is a huge disadvantage for this industry.
2: That's amazing. Um, we talk about unintended consequences, you and I, all the time. And you read a headline in the LA Times that minimum wages are going up, and you know it seems a good thing. And some people say, "Well, you know, that means it's going to cost more to hire a barista." But when you talk to someone like Alan, and you think this through about how that ripples through, and obviously once these promises get made, they're not going to be able to reduce that minimum wage again. So these pressures are
3: only going to rise on the farmers. Yeah, I think the unintended consequences of regulation is something that's. Yep. Uh, underappreciated. I mean, look, you know, I I don't mind some regulation in certain places. I'm not the true libertarian when it comes to no regulation whatsoever. But the problem is, is it impacts so many people in so many ways, it becomes impossible. The other thing about Alan's, what Alan's talking about, is if you think of how big America is as an agricultural nation, it's still one of the largest exporters of foodstuffs on earth. It's kind of the world's breadbasket. Now, the problem is we've got this structural issue growing where farmers have a ton of debt, they also have a strong dollar to deal with, and they have the issue of regulation. The problems for farmers going forward, they're already starting to go bankrupt in, in almost record numbers. Farm prices became super high over the last few decades as pension funds piled into that industry. There's a big problem to come from farming. In the end, as all commodity cycles, it means it sows the seed of the next boom when you have to restrict supply eventually.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, look, you, 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 you mentioned three things there, right? You mentioned debt. You mentioned the strong dollar, right? And I forgot what the third thing was now. Regulation. But, yeah, there you go, regulation. But uh, but you, know, you mentioned these things. This is the same story that echoes through all these things we talk about. The problems are the same. There's too much debt. When interest rates go up, the guys who, as you say, the farmers have to use a lot of debt to, to fund their operations are going to struggle. And and here we are again. It's the same thing come back. Anyway, let's go back to, uh, to Alan and hear his thoughts on uh, demographics.
1: The agriculture industry has... Um, a few self-inflicted problems. One of them is that the principal operators are old guys. Yep. And th- we, the agriculture industry could have changed this, but it, 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 is what, it is what it is. Now, you could easily argue that the smart kids, you know, they got to go to UCLA or Stanford. And after that exposure, there's no way you can get them to go back to Brawley or Bakersfield. Um, and that's probably been happening for 100 years. But the what's happened is that these old guys, they think differently than you and I. Now, I, I have a young mentality, but I'm 57 years old. Work out every day to keep my pant size from rising too rapidly. Can't stop my hair from falling out. But I think like <laughs> I'm a young guy. Most old farmers... Do not think like I do. I go out of my way to find new technology that'll help deal with these labor problems, deal with using less water, um, deal with all the new Food Safety um, Modernization Act inspection issues. Most of these guys, their answer to that is they're ruining our jobs. They're ruining our industry. And they look at everyone around them and they say, All the other old farmers we've all done okay we survived the last blow up in agriculture in the 80s and they they don't step back and realize there was a survivor bias to that so they right the guys who died in the mid 80s in agriculture were the aggressive guys who borrowed money and bought a bunch of new equipment and tried to do things differently and commodity prices dropped a bunch and turned out that paul volcker was a real hard asset to fed And he made real interest rates a very high number, which also made the dollar very strong, right? See some similarities to today. And so the aggressive guys got smoked. And the survivors are the ones that were left over. They were the careful guys. They were the guys that didn't invest in the new technology, that didn't borrow money to expand. And now they're the old guys. But they didn't become old, smart, technology-savvy, aggressive guys. They are old, conservative Survivor bias stuck in the head. We're never going to take a risk on anything, yeah. guys. Who did do that in the last fifteen years? It was a few young guys, and there's been lots of there, there's lots of young farmers in the United States that um, have give give it a good go. Um, the problem here is that they generally don't have a lot of wealth, so to expand, they had to borrow a fair amount of money. They borrowed in U.S. dollars. Not Argentine pesos or Venezuelan bolivars, so they owe U.S. dollars back. Mm-hmm. Sadly, their margins, their costs are in U.S. dollars. So at today's what seem to be kind of low U.S. dollar soft commodity prices, their margins are crushing them. So now you're going to have a second instance in my lifetime of bad confirmation bias. Yeah, is that, are you following with this? Absolutely. And so, and it's going to happen in the next five years. And my fear here is. I'm trying to cut this down a little bit, um, is that the young, aggressive farmers that borrowed money and then got smoked by crazy regulations out of Sacramento and Washington, D.C., and a strong dollar and and temporarily weak commodity prices is going to create disincentives for everybody else in the United States and Canada and a few other places around the world to do any investments in agriculture. And I think that that is a It is a human species mistake, taking away the incentives for farmers to be aggressive. uh, This is where this confirmation bias stuff Mm -hmm. kicks in pretty strong. um, With the combination of these crazy um, anti-GMO organizations out there, um, running the risk that global agricultural production capacity suffers from a big investment drought.
3: I think this is interesting because here we go, we're talking about agriculture, but really we're touching on the key big themes of our generation, which is debt, demographics, and deflation. We've got deflation in the commodity prices, we've got demographic issues of an aging population, unable to farm, un- un- unable to come up with fresh ideas, and obviously the debt that's that's binding the farmers. I think it's, it's fascinating where this is going.
2: You know, Alan's point about the average age of farmers is is something you know, I found out and surprised me a number of years ago when I was working with Steve Diggle at Volpez and we were looking at um, buying farmland around the world. This, is, this is maybe seven years ago. And all the farms we were finding were multi generational farms in countries all around the world. This wasn't America, this was Uruguay and New Zealand. And these were farms that had been in families for generations. And the latest generation had all been to law school and were doctors and they didn't want to farm the family land you know the average age of a farmer in the uk is high 50s um and this is something that's a global problem and it's exactly the same wherever you look in the
3: world yeah when i lived in spain the orange groves they grew a lot of oranges grapes and almonds near me and the orange groves particularly were basically just abandoned yeah because the people who were farming them were literally in their 80s Uh, There were small holdings. Nobody put all the things together because none of the young people wanted to take a risk in building up farmland because it seemed too risky compared to other forms of of investing your time and capital. So everything's just kind of falling apart.
2: Now, like everything, to your point to to that first clip of Alan, what this is setting up for is a multi-generational opportunity. But like everything else that we look at, overpriced stocks, overpriced bonds, until we have a clearing event, until we find fair value and naturally these things will go below fair Bay. that's when this becomes an opportunity.
3: Now the question is, um, Alan has a certain pessimism about the thing, and I think it's, if I look globally, actually I think it's a positive development globally, you know, Africa needs something to give it traction, and African farms are already a new big thing, you know, Kenyans are farming, Tanzanians are farming, Ethiopians are farming, there's a whole swathes of land there that can start to be used for productive use. And I think America is not the most productive use of, of land because of all of the cost base and all the issues that Alan's talking about. So I think globally, I don't think the food supply chain will get disrupted. I think it actually opens opportunities for others, much like the textile business did and stuff like that. Yeah, actually, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily a problem with food. It's a
2: problem with employment. It's a problem with, again, this globalization idea. If farming becomes truly global and you can produce for much lower cost... What happens to what is still a, a big employer in the U.S. I mean, it's uh, it's a problem. There's no do, no two ways about it. Anyway, now the next uh, the next clip we have for you uh, is an interesting one. Yeah, Alan Alan got into global warming, Alan, and this is an issue that uh, you know stirs a lot of emotions. And and when we spoke about it, he was he was kind of circumspect. Um, and what was interesting to me in the, in the comment section when we put this uh, video up, it was fascinating what he was talking about. You know, I said to him, look, this is a very accepting audience. They just want to hear uh, opposing ideas. And this is one of those ideas that people are very fixed in either camp and they don't like listening to new ideas. So you know, Alan talked very freely about this and what he's had to say was fascinating.
1: For the last 25 years, there's been um, a lot of talk about anthropogenic global warming. Now, the, the, the name of it got changed to climate change. Um I hate when people um, change the name of something some clear problem to something else. Right. When the evidence doesn't exactly show what they want to show. Um, it really drives me nuts that the all this anthropogenic global warming um, science is viewed as for sure it's right, um, because actually the whole theory of science is you never know whether it's right. The the job is to propose new ideas and see whether they can be falsified. So anthropogenic global warming has been put forth as a non-falsifiable hypothesis. I was trained in college to be allergic to those. And the fact is, I've taken a lot of chemistry, and I think that there's something to higher concentrations of methane and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, one global solution, um, leading to higher temperatures everything else being equal. However, I also took a lot of geology, and my father was the head of exploration at Chevron when he retired, so he knows a lot about the world's geology. The fact is that the Earth has been warmer with much lower carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, and it's been much hotter with with much lower carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. There's other things going on. Mm -hmm. Variability in the Earth's orbit around the sun, variability in the the tilt of the Earth's axis, variability in, in the, the radiation coming from the sun, and then last but not least, um, um, volcanoes and plate tectonics, which can create all sorts of global events, right? sulfur dioxide emissions like Mount T- Pinatubo, various things like that, that will um, temporarily change the Earth's climate. So the net result of this. Um, 25 years of the world is that man is the cause of, of um, the earth warming up is that voices that argue that might not be a hundred percent the cause, or maybe it's not entirely true have been stifled. Mm -hmm. Last time that this happened was um, let's see, early 16th century when the King of Denmark cut off um, Tycho Brahe's nose for saying that the, Earth went around the sun, and the moon went around the earth, and Copernicus got kicked out of his host country, right? So that was the last time a very good example of scientists being persecuted for arguing things. Um, And the whole ag tech space has been focusing on how to develop crops to deal with a warmer world.
2: Yeah you know, I, I I love this is why I love these conversations you start off talking about german bond markets and you end up here talking to someone that that has a depth of knowledge about the subject and you know I think when it comes to climate change or uh, anthropogenic global warming as Adam <laughs> first to call it um you know the my as I see it the problem is everybody has a belief instead of an opinion and we don't know is the simple answer there's plenty of evidence and you can you can put evidence for both sides you know i prefer to have an opinion instead of a belief and and i think that's why this debate is so hard to have is because people get fixed on it and they like everything else we talk about politics they just deny the other side of it alan doesn't do that
3: no that's right i think alan's point is subtle there is no doubt that there is a change in the climate um and he's not putting doubt into that that is scientifically provable now The question is is whether that's a cyclical change that's driven by the natural rhythm of the planet or by human beings. I have my own opinions, other people have their own opinions, fine. My point about this is, is it's all about risk-reward. Let's assume the human race does nothing. And Alan's right, and it's just a cyclical phenomenon that's nothing to do with mankind. Okay, that's fine. So the upside is normality, as we are now. But if it is to do with us, and we don't do anything... And we have a cataclysmic outcome, then the risk-reward is so biased that it's almost pointless to have the discussion about should we do anything or not, because if you don't, you have no good outcomes. The good outcome can only be if maybe mankind is affecting climate. And if that's the case, and we can do something about it, then we get away. Yeah,
2: I mean, no, it's, it's, it's a really good point, but it does come back to this this belief versus opinion, because... The data's there and once you decide that you're going to do something you're
3: essentially saying okay i believe the problem is us and so we will then do uh, everything I, and then you get to this regulation problem you're saying you believe you just say listen the risk reward is so skewed to a massively bad outcome that why would you not no but i'm not talking about you and
2: i but i'm talking when you when you get to the governmental level for example uh once you start down that path and i'm, I'm not disagreeing with you in any way that that we should actually err on the side of, okay, if it is us, we can do something about us. We can't and, do something about us. And who knows things. if it is us? Okay, fine. But once you make that assumption to be wholly correct and you start changing every single thing like we see, the layers and layers and layers of regulation that adds on top of everything becomes a problem for business, for people. You know, it, it's just a
3: spiral. Really interestingly, I once by accident got involved in climate change denial Twitter it was the, it was the, <laughs> hey, in it was one of the worst experiences of my life. They kind of <laughs> ganged up on me. Um but the point being is having a lot of discussions with too many people who were deeply trolling me, it came down to I was saying so what is the benefit of not doing something? Yeah. Tell me the benefit. And basically it came down to we don't want to pay higher taxes on our fuel. That right. was the basic outcome, which I think is an incredibly selfish outcome, even if mankind has nothing to do with it. That kind of thinking, I just think, I, I don't really understand. Well, unless, obviously, it's forced upon them because
2: everybody needs gas to get around and live their lives, and they're struggling. You know, they are under pressure. They they can't afford to meet their outgoings with their income. Inflation's rising, taxes,
3: blah, blah. It, you know, that's pressure on people. But interestingly enough, what Alan's not telling you here, and maybe comes on to it later, is actually, he generates clean energy. Right alan actually produces energy and that's the point is is there will be a switch away from fossil fuels anyway um and that's fine it's a good thing it will keep the cost of fossil fuels fuels low and i think when we spoke to diego uh paria and we talked about this before he's talking about methane there's a ton yeah. of other ways of doing things and technology is advancing so fast that fossil fuels don't have to be the answer for everything
2: well uh, we went on from there uh, alan and i and um you know, I, I hope everybody out there listening is going to just uh, take the time to just hear what Alan has to say because you know, he, he was visibly
3: nervous about talking about this purely because of the reaction, not because he thought it was something that shouldn't be discussed. And I think that's really important is people need to have intelligent discussion about exactly everything. Right. And I think it's really good to listen to people. And people like Alan, he's super smart, very considered.
2: Yeah, so anyway, we're, we're going from anthropogenic global warming onto a
1: possible ice age. Humans are so bad at numbers. And it, the, you know the, today it was announced US debt expanded by $1,054,000,000,000 last year. People have no idea how many zeros that nope. is. The Earth's 4.5 billion years old. But the important part of Earth started like 450 million years ago when you had first multi-celled creatures. Um, in the last 150, 200 million years, when, when there were, like, big animals moving around on the planet and big, um, multi, you know, vascular plants and stuff. As recently as, like, 10,000 years ago, there was still lots of the last ice age on the planet. Just 10,000 years ago. So much so, they're for like, they're a little bit California-centric, but the Sacramento Delta was... On the west side of where the Golden Gate Bridge stands today, between there and the Farallon Islands, because the sea level was 200 feet lower, there was a big estuary there that was formed by all the runoff from the mountains in California that went through the the San Joaquin Valley, and the marsh was there. And the sea levels rose and it moved into san francisco bay and they rose some more and it moved into where the san joaquin river and the the sacramento river come together people don't remember that but what happened during the ice age is that the planet was a lot colder and with cold everyone agrees with this one much less precipitation what if we're going through a mini ice age what if we're on the cusp of that? Nobody's looking out for this. No. Farmers are getting old. We're throwing lots of regulations at them that are making them cut back on CapEx. All the IP is being invested to deal with a warmer world. What happens if it goes the other way? Like, oh God, it could be a disaster. I could tell you the Chinese stocks, they're not going to be available to help out the people in the Philippines who can't feed their kids. The, the climate, the Anthropogenic global warming models haven't been such good predictors, just like the Federal Reserve's predictions of the outcome of their crazy monetary policy that they dreamed up. Yet, no one wants to spend a, a lot of time trying to become more calibrated. Sure. Right? Confidence is unchanged, even though accuracy of these multivariate um, prediction models is very low. So as as somebody that has lived in the multivariate prediction model world and bet real money for the little numbers on the TV set as a mortgage trader for a very long period of time, I have a healthy degree of skepticism for complex models that don't actually get it right. I'm not an anthropogenic global warming denier. If it is true, a lot of things are going to change. One will be that the warmer the Earth's atmosphere, for every degree centigrade, that the Earth's atmosphere goes up in temperature, it can hold 7% more moisture. Mm -hmm. So there will be more rainfall. Where it falls, again, nobody has any idea. Could be good for agriculture, could be bad. By the way, carbon dioxide is plant food. So right, it should actually help plants grow better. But in certain places like the Colorado River Basin. basically most of the western United States. Pretty hot, dry place. And we have 40 million people who depend on the, the controlled flow of the Colorado River, right, from Colorado down to Nevada, California, Arizona, and northern Mexico. And that river basin right now is running very low on storage. Actually amazing that we had eight years of a Democratic Party that would countenance no debate about the impact of global warming yet we allowed the sh- main shock absorber to wither away so i think that even if there's a small chance about anthropogenic global warming everybody in the western united states should be working overtime to try to figure out how to build storage in the colorado river system as a shock absorber against what if it's right now
2: there's one key phrase in there that ties almost everything together that we said you know, Alan says I'm not an anthropogenic global warming denier that to me was fascinating because when, when we were talking about this you pop straight into my head because this is what you do you look where everybody's looking and you look at the what if on the other side of this and here he's saying well you know, what if everybody's wrong and we're heading into an ice age now it then becomes a case of handicapping probabilities right? which you talk about all the time and you know, to hear someone talk about this stuff with so much depth of knowledge about the numbers and the science, kind of, th- you hear him talk about it first, and you go, "What is it? he's a climate change, you know, he's a global warming denier. He says, no, I'm not. But I understand what it is, I have my problems with it, and I understand what the other outcome is, and I need to understand how to handicap those
3: two. And that's the really important thing, because he thinks of this in terms of risk-reward, like a markets guy. So he understands is... Okay, maybe even the science is 90% in favor of it being man-made. But the 10% is a tail risk. Yep, And you need to understand that tail risk, what it means, what it could be, is the probability correct? And what he's saying is, we don't really know the probabilities. And we need to be very aware of the fact if we get them wrong, we're completely wrong-footed, which I think is... Dead right very, very interesting.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's that, you know, we don't know the probabilities, but we know that it isn't zero. And that's, so as soon as you accept that it isn't zero, and that's, I think, a big problem with the, the climate change argument, everybody's 100%, 0% on the chances, which is why you can't have the debate. But if you're willing to accept that the probability is not zero, then you have to start doing what we talk to people about all the time. Okay, if it's not zero, what are you going to do about that, whatever percentage it is? I mean, it's just a fascinating conversation with a just a supremely bright and and... Really nice guy. I thoroughly enjoyed
3: that conversation. Yeah, well, you know, I love um, how Alan thinks because he's a true macro guy. And it's the way he comes into farming and looks at it yeah. in a mas- macro risk reward basis. You know, we talked about debt demographics, deflation. We've talked about probability analysis, all those
0: kind of things that you use. I just, it's brilliant. Love it. You know, Grant, I purposely left in those climate change clips, not to stir up controversy, but hopefully, I think, bring to bring to light something that really should be subject to rigorous debate. And, you know, Alan's point about over-allocating to a hotter climate, um, but meanwhile completely missing or not looking at the other side or the other tail of this distribution or poti- distribution of potential outcomes, I think it's, it's ludicrous.
2: Well, we, we, we're getting articles this week. In fact, Alan sent me an article this week... Um about the, the damage that snow has been doing in May to a lot of crops. You know, this you know this 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 idea of that maybe cold is going to be Snow in May problem. and go away. Yeah exactly right it's uh, it is fascinating. And you know your your point is correct about about having the debate. I mean people get very fixated on climate change. It's one of those things that you know both sides are effectively deniers. Uh, and Alan sits in the middle and takes both sides of the of the coin and says okay, well okay let's work out all the outcomes, not just that one and assume that it's only going to be that way. And I, and I think that's so important just to have the debate and not be closed down to people that, that, that take the other side to you.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, actually I did my graduate studies um, in, it was kind of like the intersection between climate change and business. And, it was at Columbia. And, and, and the, the fever pitch, it's almost religious. Yeah, it, it is. It, has it can become, become religious and it can become like man-hating, human-hating. But then you think, think about the other side where it's like they don't understand that our wealth is also derived from the natural capital that we're endowed yeah. with. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting debate and, and I think people hopefully can see the nuances and look at it, look at it from both sides. All right, well, finally, we've come to a segment we call Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about an investing hiccup they made, and then we ask them to share a bit of wisdom that our listeners can take away and hopefully learn from and implement themselves. And I, I had the chance to speak with Daniel Watt. Grant, you know this. I kind of fanboyed a little bit when you told me that you were in Australia. I was like, did you speak to Daniel Watt? Just, I mean, he's he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's the CIO and co-founder of Prerequisite Capital Management. Um, and, and speaking with him, Daniel is the true autodidact. He's someone who is completely self-taught, and it was a fascinating discussion, so check it out. Joining us this week is Daniel Want, who is the Chief Investment Officer and Director of Prerequisite Capital Management based in Australia. Uh, Daniel, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast, and thanks for taking the time.
4: No worries. Nice to be here.
0: Well, great. Well, before we get into the nitty-gritty of an investing mistake you made, uh, you recently gave a phenomenal interview on Real Vision TV, and your background and, and perspective on markets is just so unique. And honestly, you're the first person um, I've ever come across, be it on Real Vision or Bloomberg, CNBC, any of the mainstream you know, financial media, who uh, utilizes the language and science of complex systems uh, towards understanding market regimes, you know, reflexive dynamics and liquidity flows. I mean, it's just truly incredible stuff. So uh, why don't we start with a rundown of your background and what you're working on right now?
4: Yeah, well, um, my background is is a little bit unconventional um the short version is i grew up in country sort of regional australia out in the bush and wanted to get into the investment world loosely so i moved to sydney and started at university doing finance and economics didn't last long because it just in the end seemed ridiculous i I realized that i could do a better job teaching myself than they could so i Fired my university, I went and became a hermit for a few years, spent a lot of money on books and, um, you know, for three or four years literally had another box of books turning up on my doorstep um, every second week and went through that, had to get back in the real world again so I um, basically found a global macro hedge fund um, that was operating out of Brisbane in Australia and called them up randomly and said, look, you wouldn't, uh, got older, the uh, director and chief investment officer of that fund and said, look, you wouldn't know me from a bar of soap. Can I buy you lunch? I want to do what you're doing in 10 years time. Uh, Turns out he bought me brekkie a few days later and offered me a job on the spot. And that sort of set into motion. He also then uh, connected me with a few uh, clients for, you know, economic and just general macro sort of research consulting uh, in currencies and things. And one thing led to another. And anyway, a few years ago, I set out on my own with a a few partners and we launched prerequisite capital management. uh, And that's what I'm doing today. And so prerequisite manages portfolios, mostly for Australian investors at the moment. Um, Internationally, we more so just provide research on, on all sorts of things, uh, basically with a view to navigating macro markets and currencies and uh, on balance, trying to stay a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, and yeah, that's I guess the short version.
0: <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I fashion myself um, a bit of an autodidact, but I mean I'm not at the level of, of, uh, of leaving leaving university and, and firing my university, sorry and, and uh, you know setting off on my own path, but that's that's an incredible story. Um, but let, us get right into it. So, you know, can you walk us through a time you made an investing mistake, uh, and, and maybe share the main lesson or lessons you derive from that experience?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I, obviously I'm in Australia and just recently I heard that you guys have done a, uh, an interview with the same question to professor Steve Keen, who spent a lot of time in Australia as well. Essentially he talked about the property market and I'd like to talk about that same property market for a very different set of reasons probably or at least the lessons I took from this experience were quite profound and they've sort of affected a a lot of how I look at the world and operate and especially then manage investment portfolios. So back 2006, 2007, um, you know, Doing my thing, researching and trying to figure out what's happening in the world and how it works, and, and the macro markets and things. And in by consequence of that, you know, I'm also looking at the property markets both in US and then in Australia in particular, and looking at it as a source of you know potential risk to the systems that we're developing. Um, 2008 came along, uh, you know, and back in 2007 it seemed very plain and. I was basically warning everyone I knew, both here and, you know, wherever the people were that I was talking to, but particularly our Australian sort of clients and family and friends that, look, the property dynamics here in Australia are in bubble territory and, you know, they – it's crazy. It's, it's not likely to go on um, and basically saying similar things about the U.S. now, Now, with the benefit of hindsight, 10 years later – you know, here in Australia, we've still got property prices going higher. You know, the, there was a bit of a blip lower in um, 2008, but it was really just that. It was just a speed hump and it just kept on powering through. Um, the key lessons that I learned back then and that I've learned from that, you know, whereas the US, they actually had their end game scenario play out in their property market. Um, and we saw that bubble unwind and you know, with great significance to the, the U.S. economy. Here in Australia, it kept on ploughing through, and one of the main reasons, especially in the years to come, you know, 2008 through 2011, 2012, is the Chinese banking system. Uh, back in 2007, if you were to add all the assets in this the Chinese central bank and commercial banking system, it came to about $7 trillion U.S. dollars. Um. Today, the U.S. Uh, the total Chinese banking system is now running at about 37 trillion U.S. dollars. You know, and in those four years from 2008 to 2012, roughly, we saw an increase in the the Chinese system that is just unprecedented. in it, um, and so we got this essentially an adaptive response from the system, right? And Australia, the Australian economy, and our prospects, and and Especially our property markets indirectly have still, you know, we didn't have that reckoning or that unwind back then. Uh, rather, what we had was the the benefits from an, a a very unprecedented uh, credit and banking system I- expansion in China that pretty much steamrolled everything and and. Was enabled our property market to go from crazy back then to somewhat insane today. Um, you know, we're 10 years on now and we're still going. And so the key lesson that, you know, I drew from that experience watching all of this unfold um, is just comes back to what I was learning back then uh, about the adaptive nature of systems. You know, we can do an analysis as a macro analyst or or whatever we're doing and and identify even an insolvent situation. Uh, For example, the US fiscal situation, you know, largely the reality of it is that they're insolvent. They've promised more than they realistically are going to be able to deliver on in the the years to come, you know, from the government's perspective, absent, you know, some sort of a money printing uh, mechanism. But that's an end game scenario. Back in two thousand and seven I could see the end game of an overvalued property market both in Australia and in the US. Now what I didn't see was the adaptation that the system would go through, i.e. in this in, in Australia's case, China. And so one of the lessons of history is that societies will often take themselves to the brink, they'll look over the edge into the abyss, but then they'll pull back and they'll adapt. You know, four times out of five. And I'm just making that number up, but it seems to be uh, valid from from the studies I've done in history, but four times out of five, people or societies will pull back from the edge and they'll adapt. They'll kick the can down the road or they'll adapt in some way, shape or form. It's only maybe one out of five scenarios where society will go to the brink, they'll look over the edge into the abyss and in a lemming-like manner, continue over uh, into oblivion, you know. More often than not, we get to the abyss, and and we find some way of adapting. And um, and so, to have an investment management and even a, a macro analytical um, philosophy of focusing on the process of change more so than some end game uh, end game resolution uh, is just essential. You you be aware of the end game because that creates a bit of a a context or a framework to um the need for adapting. Mm-hmm. Right. But your focus always has to be on the the way the system is actually evolving and adapting. And
0: and so Daniel, I wanna I wanna ask you kind of a follow-on question here because, you know, there, there's first of all, there's so many great points. Separating the end game from how the system is evolving. Um, and then also, you know, how I, I wanna understand and I think our listeners w- would want to as well, understand how you know okay, we're aware that we, we we operate in a complex system that has adaptation and has nonlinearities and it has reflexivity, but how does that actually manifest itself in um in, in a portfolio strategy?
4: Okay. Well there's a, a couple of sort of principles that come to into play. Um firstly defense, which is you know the capital preservation side of things, you you need to make sure that your portfolio is sufficiently, effectively diversified enough. You know, so I always talk in terms of resiliency, that capacity to adapt. Now, the way I do that in my portfolio is because I I don't necessarily – I manage, um, you know, real money portfolios. We don't use derivatives. We don't use leverage. We're basically just long-only – you know, asset allocation and we have, you know, more aggressive sort of mandates, uh, a more active view on uh, currency management as well. And so within that, you know, the building blocks of my portfolios, you know, I'm always going to have some cash, always going to have some equities, you know, like longer duration government bonds, always going to have some precious metals, always going to have a little bit of foreign currency. Um, and essentially... Starting with that starting point, you know, precious metals, cash, equities and and longer duration government bonds, you know, as four asset classes, they're about as uncorrelated as you'll ever get, you know, and correlations come and they go, but as four asset classes, that's as as close to uncorrelated as you'll get. That gives me a starting point and an undercurrent or a foundation of resiliency. Um, irrespective of what happens in the world, whether it's a growth shock or an inflationary event or a deflationary event or just a financial crisis, whatever it is, one, some of those asset classes will do well. Some of them will get smoked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can pretty much at some level sleep better at night knowing that, you know, if we get some sort of unexpected nonlinear sort of change in the system or surprise. Right. Um, because that's what drives those underlying trends, and yeah. valuations are important, but only as a context.
0: Yeah, you know, there's. I, I really wish we had more time, and it's been a fascinating discussion. You know, Daniel, before before you end it, what strikes me sort of is that you can look at the outside world from the perspective of complex adaptive systems, but you can you can sort of look at your portfolio from that perspective as well, right? Because um, the elements that make up a, a dynamic and adaptive. Uh, system. I mean, that's, that's, those are the sort of characteristics that you would probably want out of, out of your own portfolio, you know, kind of portfolio you're saying that can follow trends so it can adapt to reflexivity in the broader system or, you know, take advantage of nonlinear events. So uh, I mean, this framework for thinking about markets, but also thinking for your portfolio, I think is is striking and something that I hope people, um, you know, catch on to. But uh, before we end it, uh, can you, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you or follow your work?
4: Yeah. I mean, the best way, I guess, is to just jump on our, our website, um, prerequisite.com.au. And uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so through there and you can have a little bit of a look at what we do. And uh, mostly, most of our um, portfolio management clients are in Australia, um, but in, but we do have a lot of research and consulting clients around the world. Um Tends to be uh, more of a non-institutional sort of audience, um, private investors, all of this sort of thing. Um, more than happy to talk to anyone. Well, great. But, yeah, you, all the info is on the website.
0: All right, great. Well, look, I, I can't recommend your blog enough, and, and um, I, I highly recommend our listeners visit your website. Um, you know, Check out your writing, because seriously, it houses some of the, the most unique and profound market commentary that I've you know, found anywhere on the internet. Uh, and, you know, if our listeners are interested in complex adaptive systems and how that framework applies to markets, I think you're going to have a field day reading Daniel's stuff. And and I know, look, I've signed up for the email alerts, and I hope our listeners get on that list as well. So uh, with that, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem. You know, Grant, I really enjoyed that conversation. And the main point, the main takeaway for me was how, at the same, you know, you have to keep the end game in mind, but also think about how the system might adapt. And it's a great point, but also... Much easier said than done, right? Because um, I remember we had a massive rainstorm a couple of weeks back, and so actually this refers back to what Daniel sent, said about China providing liquidity and absorbing liquidity after two thousand eight. I was driving around there was a massive rainstorm, and you know I saw certain pools on the road you couldn't drive there, and I was thinking, well, where's the next? You know, if, if you could figure out where the market, or where economies are able to absorb liquidity in the next, you know, say the next time we do have a crisis, then maybe you can figure out how it can adapt. But you know. In this case, with markets and in economies, the let's call it the permeability of, of the ground and its ability to absorb liquidity also changes. So I, don't know, I just had that thought as I was driving, and I, know, I thought it was well, you, an interesting you, point you, from you Daniel. You talk
2: about how systems can adapt, and the simple truth is systems do adapt, always. They're constantly changing, constantly adapting. And you know, sometimes the system adapting means equity prices get cut in half right we you know the system is adapting to there being too much debt or adapting to poor cover whatever whatever it may be uh, and daniel's such a great thinker about this stuff he really does take such a an interesting viewpoint on it he's a, he's a brilliant young man and and i just i just really really enjoy every time i get a chance to speak with him
0: and the question i want to ask daniel was like cuz he said four to five times people look over the abyss and they don't go over and they you know they, they pull back but well, I'm left wondering, okay, at what point is the ener- the cost or the energy cost of maintaining the complexity of the system uh, much greater than what you would get out of the system? And I think that's the, you know. Well, the
2: system tends to make that decision on its own. I mean, that's, that's the beautiful thing about systems, right? It's, it's, this is not, the decisions that get made are generally to stop the system adapting. It's, you know, we don't want equity prices cut and calf. We don't want rising commodity prices. We don't want whatever it may be. Um that's the system evolving, the steps that are put in place to prevent those outcomes. You know, Ultimately, we've, we've spoken about this on the podcast, Raoul and I have spoken about it, there's been tons of people on Real Vision talk about it, this, this idea that the system is natural and the natural forces are at play here and no man can ever really turn those back. You can, you can maybe hold them up for a time, but ultimately the system will adapt and change in the way it needs to to survive. All right. Well, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. Um, Before we go, a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and as always, please trade responsibly.
0: That's right. And next week, we're back with the usual long, short segment and things I got wrong. But we'll be featuring um, an overview of financial scandals and crises. We'll be speaking with economic and financial historian Tim Price, who's the partner and director of of investment at PFP Wealth Management, uh, and also Frequent Market Commentator.
2: Yeah, this is going to be fun. We're, we're going to pull back the curtain on some of these uh, scandals and crises. And uh, I think as this podcast moves forward, you're going to hear a bit more about these sort of things. But in the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show or anything else, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or a voice note at podcast at
0: realvision.com. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Yeah, don't forget those reviews. Yeah, it helps us in the ranking. Have you figured out the algorithm yet?
2: I have not. Right. Uh, but I've got to be honest, I haven't
0: spent an awful lot of time trying to work it out.
2: Now, to keep up to date with the latest uh, interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision.
0: You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for us, Real Vision.
2: And you can follow me on Twitter at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.